Welcome everyone. Um, as Karen says, my name is Gary, I'm the head of nursing at the University of Leicester. Um, used to work at Sheffield Hallam, so you might have initially seen that works at Hallam on some of the paperwork. And obviously, no Jim used to work with Jim. Um, my interest has always been about football, right from a very young age. So, my, as you may have heard, answering one of them, um, responding to Emma, my clinical background is working with men with personality disorder and high skill service. And I just spoke to a couple of people in the room earlier. If I did that at doctoral level, sorry, I missed a bit out. For my masters, I looked at men who self-harm, because that's what I work with. If I did that at doctoral level, I say frequently to people, I would have been a statistic. I probably would have self-harmed, I would have been at risk working with that all the time. So I always wanted to do a doctorate, so I came back to what I'm good at, if you like, and what I enjoy, which was football. And obviously linked it with mental health. Now, before I start, obviously I don't know who's in the room, so just a bit of a trigger warning. I'm not going to talk about suicide and too much death, but obviously I've said the word. And most of you, I hope most of you, recognise Gary Speed up there. Now I say the trigger warning now because I've delivered this slide before and one of Gary's relatives were in the room and I didn't know. So obviously I don't know who knows who and what your experiences are and what your knowledge of football is. So just a quick one, and you can shout these out if you know them. Can you name any of those players? All Gascoigne. Yep. Yeah, obviously, most Clark, people know Paul Gascoigne. Carlisle. Yeah, Clark Carlisle. 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 Yeah, Gary Speed. Yeah, Gary Speed, top right. Yep. Yeah. You don't have to get them all. Carlton Palmer and Palmer. No, it's Marvin Sordell, not Carlton Palmer. So, I'll go this way around. We've got Marvin Sordell, played in the Premier League. Paul Gascoigne, Danny Rose, played for England and during the World Cup spoke out about his experience with depression. On the middle right, Kevin Ellison. So in this kind of area, he played for lots of clubs, Morecambe and places like that. He has recently spoken out about his mental health. Clark Carlisle in the middle. He used to be the Professional Football Association's chairman, widely known as one of the most intelligent footballers going, which kind of breaks some of the stereotypes. Um, Martin Wycorn at Derby. Gary Speed, top right. Alan Lennon, ever, ever top there when he was at Everton, now at Burnley. You may have seen in the media a couple of years ago, he was sectioned and so it made like national headlines and Robert Enker top left now I've left Robert Enker purposely to the last because he and Gary Speed are the inspiration for this project because particularly some of you may I won't talk about Gary Speed so hopefully people have heard of Gary Speed but Robert Enker was a top level German goalkeeper played for the German national team um, played for Barcelona played for Benfica externally looking at him he's got what I would kind of aspired to, he's got a footballing career, he's got the finances, he's got the happy family. He was married with a young daughter. Unfortunately his young daughter was born I believe with a heart defect. He struggled with depression all of his life. He then played for the first team for Barcelona, on his debut for Barcelona, um, they played in a cup match and they were beaten and he was blamed so he felt all that pressure. Outside of football he had this trauma in his own life and his young daughter died at a very young age. I've got loads of kids, so as a father, I, I cannot understand how I would cope with that. Obviously, he struggled to cope with that to a point where, ultimately, he stepped in front of a speeding train and took his own life. So the key thing with this, with this whole project, the fundamental aspect is, these are footballers, and my project is about footballers, but football is their job. They are men. They are prone to the same issues, mental health issues, life experiences that we all may be because life gets in the way sometimes. They just happen to play football. So we'll start with this, because obviously these, if you know about football, these are kind of big names in the football world. <coughs> but what you don't see is the people at the lower levels, if you like, academy players. 
So these five people on here, I don't ex can anybody name anybody in the slide? I don't expect anybody to do that. It'd be a bonus if you did. So these are young players who, as you can guess, all took their own life at a very young age. So you've got a guy, Jeremy Whiston, in the Manchester City shirt, I think he was 16, academy player. And what happens this time of year, we're told we're not wanted. So, and we're just kind of kicked out without any kind of warning, and we struggle to cope with that. Zoe Tynan played for Everton. Um, I believe she struggled with injury as well, and some of these young people have injuries which can become debilitating, and they struggle to recover from, and obviously impacts the mental health. Again, took her own life. And then we have Jack Syme, who played in Scotland. Um, his name's Darlington, Joe Darlington, hospital. You have to forgive me, I forgot his first name, but again, young lad uh, on the um, precipice of playing for Wales, but again, broke his leg, had a trial for Manchester United, got injured, which wrecked his dream of playing for Manchester United. And Chris Mitchell, I purposely left till the end. There's a link with Chris Mitchell and Robert Enker, again, he stepped in front of the speeding train and took his life. Um, had some really bad injuries, really, really promising playing in Scotland. Had some really bad injuries, lots of surgeries, struggled to recover. And there's now a Chris Mitchell Foundation set by his family, which have improved mental health first aid within Scottish football clubs, from players to staff to everybody in between. So we've done some really, really good stuff. So this kind of, again, I'll, I won't be as fast as Jim, but I will, I'm conscious of time, I will flick through some stuff, which is why I'm, I'm pleased that the slides will be safe later afterwards. So essentially what led, I won't read through all this, but essentially what led me to this project, when I looked into it, there's lots of information about academy players. There's lots of information about retired players. So if you're interested in football and you read autobiographies, players talk about the stresses, issues with depression, relationship breakdowns, gambling, bankruptcy, after they've finished playing. And that transition period is difficult. But we don't talk about it while we're current players. So my focus for this doctoral study is active, current, first-team professional footballers across the English Football League. That was my target sample. Um, yeah, so they have stress. We all have stresses. We have life stresses, and that's normal, but obviously specific to those um, in football. Uh, Vincent Gutebach talks about we can be prone to over 640 different stresses. Please don't ask me to name each and every one of 640. But they have injuries, and things play in the mind. I did um, a talk to a professional football league club some time ago. Lots of young players in the room. I just said, by a show of hands, who's been injured before? Who's had surgery? Nearly every hand went up. These are like 17 year old players. So severe injuries, if you have a severe injury, same in any, any way of life, any work we do, will you reach that same level of performance again? Will you play again? In some cases, will you walk again? Some people have severe leg breaks or Achilles injuries or whatever it might be. The impact of surgery, so I don't know how many have had an operation before. If you're waiting to go down to the theatre, that can be quite nerve wracking, anxiety provoking. You don't know about, well, we're warned of complications or potential side effects, we don't know how we'll come out the other side of it. Um, career dissatisfaction. Talking to participants, and from my own experience, football is ruthless. It's cutthroat. They're treated like commodities. So the previous talks about, uh, about being and being with someone and connecting with someone doesn't happen in football in the same way. When the contract's up, you're out the door. If your face doesn't fit, you're out the door. A new manager comes in. I'm sure you know there's no stability in football. Some clubs change their managers, as an example, on a regular basis. Um, I think, as an example, Watford Football Club have had so many managers in a five-year period that sometimes have two or three managers each season. So as a player, you get a new person coming in with their own ideas, and if your face doesn't fit, which sometimes happens, again, you're out of the first team and you're out the door. In addition to all this, 
These are players who, lots of them have a good wage. Lots of clubs encourage the players to settle down and get a relationship and ideally mature, maybe get married and have children. So lots of young players have young families. Like I've said, life gets in the way. Going back to Robert Enker, he had a daughter with a health defect and before she passed away. We, I'm sure we all know people who've had similar experiences. Um, we have elderly relatives or other relatives who have from natural causes or illnesses are affected by this. Players are no different. Um, I have put, as you can see, images through there. When I first did this one, it's rare to see England win a penalty shootout, so I think that picture will stay on my presentation for quite a while just to cheer me up really. In terms of the trajectory and journey of being a professional footballer from a young age, I don't know if anybody knows anybody, boy or girl, who's played for a football club at any age. That becomes an identity. So if you've got a son or daughter who is linked to um, Preston North End, as an example, God help me if we're, but if, if it did, if you've got a child who, I don't know, seven years old would play for Preston, you might say, this is little Tommy, he plays for Preston. And that's how people introduce their children who are footballers. That identity goes with them. They get to 16, 17, they will get a contract, they will get a youth scholarship, they will get to the academy. What happens if they don't get to the next stage? Clubs now are getting better in terms of education, but certainly some years ago, didn't exist. A football dream ends, either from severe injury, a bad tackle, whatever it might be, we've got no plan B, don't know what happens next. So again, the injury, what happens with that? Not related to professional football, but I used to play Sunday morning football and Saturday football. A friend of mine, and went in on a bad tackle. He broke his leg in four places, which meant that he was a self-employed painter and decorator. I'm sure he knew what was coming. He couldn't work. He couldn't provide for his family because he wasn't getting paid. It changed his identity. He became quite isolated. It affected his mental health and became really, really depressed and he needed um, professional services, professional support. He's not a professional footballer, yet that exists in that scope. Um, if he dropped, a bowler get a place back in the team. Essentially, some of these issues in terms of being released and um, what if you get sent off again. I'm a Doncaster Rovers fan from the Sins and for a few years ago in a playoff semi-final, my favourite player in the last minute of playoff semi-final headbutted another player and got sent off. He no reason behind it whatsoever, he just decided to headbutt someone and he was left out of that team for the next six months because the manager didn't agree with what he did. And we were losing every game and then the manager had to do something different, brought that player back in and we suddenly went on promotion for him. Um, but there's lots of things with this. The key thing is contracts. So depending on what your job is, you might have an open-ended contract or fixed-term fixed contract. In football, this time of year, or from January onwards, they're playing for the contract. If they get injured, if they get dropped, if they've got life events and we're not playing, they're not going to get a contract. And obviously I'm not talking about Premier League players at Manchester United and Manchester City who are on long-term deals. If you're looking at the Championship and lower down, short-term contracts can clearly help people. Um, and change again, you'll know people who are infected by change. There's lots of turbulence, lots of change and anxiety in football. I'll just kind of skip past this one, but it affects it. A quick point on the retain list. So again, we're coming to the end of the football season and clubs announce their retain list. And what that means is they announce which players they are keeping, who's under contract, the players are keeping, or the players are going to offer new contract to, or the players are releasing. Ideally, you would expect the clubs to talk to those players and say, unfortunately, we don't want to keep you, it's not working out, we're going to move you on. Frequently, I've spoke to players who find out because we've seen it on social media. We go away on holiday, the retain list is released, and the name is on there with no communication from the club, which personally I think is horrendous. 
So that's the title on the doctoral project with my aims there. So my idea was is how are male professional footballers affected by mental health within football? You can see the key thing is male. And the reason behind that, people frequently say, what about female, what about female? Which is great and I know lots of researchers who are looking at um, the professional women's game and some really, really good work going on. My focus is male, I'm male. So that's where my interest <laughs> came from really. And I'm not ruling out further research with um, women's football because I would be interested in that. But for this, I'm purely looking at the men's game. My three main aims to look at what the issues are, what affect from a mental health point of view. Uh, critically discuss the social construction and how men are socialised into professional football. There's a way of behaving in the changing room. If you don't fit into that norm, your face might not fit. You might not get contracts, you might be unemployed, and then you go back into that cycle again. And about help-seeking behaviour. How do you ident to identify the issues that affect men's help-seeking behaviour? We know traditionally, men do not talk. Men who have mental health issues, or stress, or anxiety, whatever, do not reach out. It is changing, but not enough. And again, if I wasn't a men's health nurse, I'd be a statistic. I have my own issues like most people do. I talk about them a bit more, but if I wasn't a nurse, I would not talk about them whatsoever because that's the kind of family I've come from. So in terms of methodology, um, obviously it's qualitative. Perfectly put Johan Cruyff up there because he's a thinker. He was a footballing thinker and changed football for the better, um, which is why I have tried to make the link there. And like he says here, football is a game you play with your brain. Life is a game that you play with your brain. So my uh, interpretive approach, basically this fits with how I've operated as a mental health nurse. So how I've kind of um, interviewed some of the participants would be the same way I've connected with some patients I've worked with. And the key thing I've put this together with is the sciences framework. So I don't know if you've heard of Professor Laura Serrant for her PhD where she looked at um, black Caribbean men in terms of their sexual health. She developed the sciences framework, which was core to underpinning this. And there's lots of research starting to be published and certainly from Laura out there in the literature, so we can look at it in more detail. Essentially, that's a framework, but essentially it's for marginalised groups, for voices that aren't heard, people suffering silence. So this framework is to try to enable us to hear those silences and hear those voices. That's put it together in a bit more of a cycle, which will make a bit more sense. Essentially, I do a review. I've interviewed 18 current first-team players. Yeah, there we go. So 18 current, current at the time, some have now retired since I've interviewed them. Um, I did three pilot interviews to start with and then focus on these first team players. Again, with a pandemic and geographical location, face to face would have been perfect and I did some of that. But then to pin them down, which is hard work, football is a closed shop. So getting to them is hard work. So I did some by Skype, some by Zoom, some by telephone, recorded them all, transcribed them all. Um, Interestingly for me, the player, the participants have played at all levels of the English game, but at the time they weren't currently playing for a Premier League club. So the Premier League teams are really, really protective. Some of the guys I interviewed have played at international level, they've played the European Championships, one played in the Olympic Games, so they've played all over the place. So the idea with the sciences framework um, is part of my analysis. So I interview the players and I produce the initial findings summary. So we've all I try and piece together what we're talking about, try and put it into some kind of sense, send it back to the participants and give them the opportunity to respond. Out of 18 players, 10 players came back to me, which I thought was great because it's hard work getting hold of them. And that becomes what we call the draft one findings. This is in the sciences framework. And then we talk about the collective voices. So what the collective voices are user voices. So these participants talked about everybody within football who helped them, which you'll see in the slide at the moment. 
So I try to identify these external people who have been their support network to then send them these draft form findings to ask them, do you recognise these stories? Do these stories resonate with you and your experience of people within football? Which are then produced from a draft two findings, so based on my findings, and then I've used Brawn and Clark's thematic analysis to piece it all together. In terms of collective voices, they're a list of the people. So we've talked about help from managers and coaches and physiotherapists. Going back to injury, as they're rehabilitating and start to recover from injury to come back to the group, there's no mental health support. They work with a physio in the gym, and the physio happens to be the person they maybe start to offload to, maybe start to talk about issues. So we've got a couple of physios in there, a couple of psychologists, um, a counsellor who's worked with the PFA in professional football, um, a club chaplain at a Premier League club, and then also, we talked about social networks, we've talked about family members, and reports of a female family members. So I spoke to a mother of a former championship player and the wife of a current League Two footballer. So they basically looked at my findings and gave me some feedback to say, yes, this makes sense, yes, we can support this, or in some cases, added a bit extra. So then the key themes, got five key themes, social networks, so the importance of a family, that support. Initially they talked about it was a male figure who got them into football, father, grandfather, uncle, somebody like that, and kind of said, there's a ball, off you go, or come with me to watch the football. But in terms of the support and the sacrifices and the nurturing, it came from a female family member. There's a couple of players in particular who spoke about um, being in a family where it was a single parent and their mum did everything. So they are, their goal is to achieve as much as they can in football, successfully financially, to provide back to their mother or grandmother to repay um, that favour if you like. The environment is the next one, so obviously if you're playing for a winning club, everything's, everything's great. If you work for a happy organisation, you're probably a happy employee. If you work for a negative one or a toxic one, or a club who's getting relegated, Again, I'm a Doncaster Rovers fan. It's been traumatic this season. They've been relegated. They've been awful. There's been issues everywhere. Players are talking about issues. Fans are really negative. So it's not a nice place to be. Help seeking support. Again, what are the enablers? What are the barriers? Why aren't men seeking support? Why can't they talk out, talk out about problems? And that's why. Because of vulnerabilities. So going back, let's see if I can quickly do it. I forgot to ask this question. What do you notice on that slide? Yeah, each and every one of them has significant mental health issues. Two have taken their own life, most have been in the media, most have talked about the challenges they've had. Everyone is smiling because not just as men, but as people who mask it. So they're lacking, particularly Gas. We all know about Paul Gascoigne, who's frequently been used, and clearly the rails, rails have come off over the years. Yes, there's times where we're happy, and it's the same for all of us. So we mask our vulnerabilities again in the changing room. It links for me with my experience of working with high school offenders. This idea about, yeah, I'm all right. We ask people, are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. We mask vulnerabilities. You have these men, this bravado, this masculine behavior and terminology, which I've seen with offenders, links to football, doing it the same way. And then obviously in terms of mental health, so I've split this into two sub-themes. So the impact in self, of self. So some of them have, are predisposed to mental health issues, happen to have whatever mental health experiences in my life, and then we're going to football, and then some of them are stigmatised and discriminated against. There's a big thing all linked to that about, for example, in the job, whatever job you guys do, if you're feeling a bit anxious, if your mental health's not 100% and you want a mental health day, I'd like to think most of you can probably do that. If you're a footballer, I spoke to one guy who's a goalkeeper, in a warm-up to a big game, 
he became really anxious. He's got a long family history of anxiety, he's got a long history himself of anxiety. But he said to me that he couldn't go to his manager and say, my head's not in it, can I be on the bench, can you drop me out, I'm, I'm, I'm not well. He faked a physical injury. He, hurt, he claimed he'd hurt his hand, so as goalkeeper, I've got a hand injury, I can't play. And it's just because he didn't have the courage to say, my head's not right, I'm too anxious for this, um, I need a bit of a rest, because he knew he would lose his place in the team and it comes back into contracts and employment and identity and all the things that follow from it. Um, I'll cut past a couple of these, I'm not sure how many of time. So I've got two slides here, again I won't go through so them all, but you can see a couple of quotes there. So this is Gary Fakes' injury, um, so he pretended to hurt his wrist. Being released again, this time of year, players are released. Some have some warning, some have no warning, um, and one guy I talked to, he was released. And it coinc uh, coincided with his recovery from a serious injury, where he was struggling with his mental health because of the injury. Then we told him, you're injured, you've not been playing, we don't want you. It also lined up with the anniversary of his father's suicide. So he had this triple whammy of trauma all at the same time. So clearly like that was true. And he was great, he just never met before, met face to face, and I think my mental health nursing skills worked, he just came out with it, which was brilliant. Like I mentioned, football's cutthroat. Um, and a, a comment here, so this guy at the bottom talked about losing his way. His brother was in hospice care. So his brother, I can't remember exactly the age, so maybe about 30, let's say he's about 30 years old. Um, and his brother was in hospice care and he's still playing and he's supporting his brother all the time as a, as a good brother or a good family member would do his brother passed away he carried on playing and he thought you know trying to keep some normality in his life and as a fan looking back now because he, he played for my team um, and I hear fans say oh he's rubbish get him off and what's going on being really negative but then now knowing what he was going through then that makes sense it's the same for us if, if I've not got a brother, I've got sisters, but if I had a brother who's in hospice care who passed away, it's going to affect my work performance without a shadow of a doubt. I'm going to need some time off, I'm going to need some support. Um, and then in the end, he reached out to a senior player, not a manager, or not so. Um, one guy talked about, as we all like to say, it's a strength to be vulnerable. It's okay to be not okay, it's good to reach out, but we need to do that more in football. Masculinity is obvious. Um, again, in the changing room was that big culture of toxic masculinity. Um, one guy here gets stick from his own fans before he even kicks the ball on the pitch. So he's already anxious about playing in the game, pretty much nerves or whatever it might be. Pressure from the club, pressure from family, pressure from everyone. And he's not done anything, his fans are already on his back. Because the media's negative, the fans are negative, social media ties into that. Now, it's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. And then the bit about injuries. So this guy's had 13 operations. He was mid-20s and he had a ridiculous amount of operations. So hopefully nobody in the room has had that many. So what I've done now, I've got a few slides from the findings, but there'll be no way that I'll rattle through all these because I've got my recommendations at the end. So please do have a look at these afterwards and come back to me with any questions. What I've pointed out in each slide is something's in bold, just to jump things out. So in terms of social networks, obviously it talks about family members. The mother being the central, or maternal figure being central and the fact that families make big sacrifices. So if anyone in the room has got a young person, or youngling as Jim likes to call them, who have an opportunity at a club somewhere, it's for parents or grandparents or aunties and uncles who drive all over the place, frequently miles. If they've got the opportunity at a professional club and they're training midweek and 
I don't know, I don't know how far Manchester is from here. So if you're at Manchester United, you will drive them two or three times a week to wherever they need to be. You'll make sacrifices for your children. Um, one player talks about, or a couple of players talked about ex-partners. So lots of players talked about losing. So losing the match would be the result of a match, they would take it home with them. Like we might have, if you had a bad day at work, you might go home, take it out on your loved ones, kick the cat, do all the stereotypical stuff. But as players, some of these guys talk about we'll lose on the Saturday and it affects them until the Monday or something. So their partners might say, right, we've got plans for Saturday night. Some players are talking about not going to weddings and family weddings because we've had events to go to, we've lost a game on Saturday, we've gone home in a bad mood. We don't want to mix, we don't want to socialise. And it's had a detrimental impact on their relationships. Then also we've talked about the positives of sense of well-being, good support networks. Again, that's relevant for all of us, having good support networks. In terms of the environment, I mentioned the dressing room. It can be supportive, like anywhere can, but equally it can be really, really negative. Um, again, linking it to Doncaster over some years ago, I don't, again, depend on your football knowledge, um, we tried the experiment, that's what it was called, where this agent brought in lots of big name foreign players across from France to put them in the shop window, pay them not very much money, play for a few games, and then hopefully improve results, and they might get a shop window to go elsewhere. Essentially, you had two camps. You had the, the normal players, if you like, the players with contracts who've been there a while. And some of these guys, one in particular, was a very good player. He was, lived in France. He'd stay in France all week. He'd fly in for the game, play the game, go home again. There was no connectiveness, um, no therapeuticness, no kind of networking, no, no team bonding. So the team was fragmented. Ultimately led to relegation and lots of negativity about it. Pressure's higher in the first team. So obviously as you work your way further up, there's more pressure. Get to international level, I'm sure you've seen all the negative media about England over the years. The media very quick to put the boot in, if you like, rather than say, actually, you've done something really, really well, whether that's a manager, a player, a coach, whatever it might be. Um, lots of peer pressure, lots of hostility. If you look at it in terms of peer pressure, if you see players stepping off a coach and when we've got the headphones on, most of them, same headphones, same kind of trainers. There's lots of pressure to conform, to do what viewers do. We've all got tattoos. Most of them have got very similar tattoos. So is it you've got a senior playing the dressing room who looks a particular way, and these young players think, I want to be like him, or I want to be like her. So we dress the same way, same haircut, same tattoos, same beats headphones. Um, and again, the negativity. So the negativity in the club can restrict the growth and togetherness, which would make sense. Help seeking, it's difficult. Um, some people don't want to talk to a teammate, but worried about speaking out because of the stigma that might come with it, again, losing the place on the team. Um, reluctant to um, approach the manager because obviously the manager calls the shots. He picks a team or she picks a team. Yeah, if they go to them and say, I'm struggling at the moment, I've got stuff going on. There are examples of managers, progressive managers, who will support the players. But there's that fear that the players won't speak out in case they lose that place. And you think about it, if they've been uh, involved in football from five, six, seven years old and that's all they know, but talk about their dream is to play football. They're scared that somebody's going to end that dream and the manager would have that power. Um, the PFA, so Professional Football Association, this is a mixed bag. They are the service what support or should support players, that's the players union. And they talk about, if you look at the website, we need a chat later because I can see you shaking your head so I'm interested. Um, so you look at the website and we'll give you 24 hours, seven days a week phone number. And they did at one point develop what we call the Footballers Guidebook, which is like, a, it's useful but it's a comic. In my opinion, if I was feeling suicidal, as a man, as a player, 
I wouldn't be phoning in a helpline. This is just me. I would not be picking up a phone to talk to somebody I don't know. If I then reach out and have the courage to say, I'm struggling, can I have some help? And they gave me a comment, that would go in the bin. And that would make me worse. So there needs to be an improved measures of support. Oh, key thing there at the bottom, the support only seems to be given or awareness about mental health when it's a high profile person. Again, Gary Speed made global news. If Danny Rose spoke about the World Cup all over the media, the young players I mentioned, you don't see. So we don't seem to be interested unless it's somebody you pull gas coins or that kind of level. And even then, it's not good enough. But masking vulnerabilities, again, in that dress, dressing room, in that toxic masculinity place, some players said that's not them, they don't like it. But they don't feel comfortable enough to go in and challenge it because it can be seen as weakness, which is nonsense. So there's still that big thing about weakness. There's a big thing about terminology, so certainly in terms of the macho team talks, you've got to be strong, you've got to win your battles. Everything we talk about and every clip you see always has this masculine tone to it. Rather than actually go out there, try your best, perform, enjoy it. I think Alex Ferguson used to say, enjoy it but win. So go and play that way. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of mental health, so again, some people experience panic attacks and football's a pressurised game and that can make things worse for all the things we've talked about. Um, moving away from home. So young players who wanted, there's lots of, as an example, lots of young men came across from Ireland to play in the Northwest at all these different clubs and to fulfill their dream. At 15, 16 years, go, uh, years old, moving away from the families to live in digs with strangers to try and fulfill that dream, and then it doesn't always work out. And then, if, uh, for example, my cousin a long time ago, I think he was on the books at Stoke City, and Stoke were releasing him, but Torquay would give him a contract. But he lived in the Northwest, didn't want to travel to Torquay, so he decided football's not for him and he went into something different. But for some people who want to cling on to that, would travel all over the place. Going back to Clark Carlisle at the start, if you read his autobiography, I think he was living up York way on, and he played for Northampton, and he had issues with alcohol, so he lost his, his driver's license. So because he wanted to play football, he took the contract in Northampton, was traveling on the train, it was costing him a fortune, impacted his relationship, and again, I missed out on Clark. If you know about Clark, he steps in front of a, of a lorry to attempt to take his own life some years ago. National news, what you don't see, Clark survived, but what you don't see, the lorry driver who hit him never recovered from that mentally. He took his own life, linked to that particular event. Um, again, lots of stuff about the impact on the relationships, return from injury, contract I've talked about. So just quickly, because I'm about out of time, in terms of recommendations, so I've got a slide here for further research. In my uh, thesis, this is obviously in a lot more detail, but for further research, um, for practice and for policy, so I'm interested if there's a link between position and mental health. I've talked to goalkeepers who struggle. So that's as quick, I'm about out of time, but you can see there's lots of issues there in terms of further research, also including uh, women's football. Um, recommendation for practice, so for more interventions, more training, more recognition, introduce mental health champions, introduce counsellors, um, try and get former players involved in counselling to work back at clubs to make a difference because players talk to players. I'm an outsider, that's why it's been hard to get to be an insider. Um, modify the language, um, support players further, and then finally in terms of policy, um, develop a holistic approach to mental health. So rather than just, it's all three points, you've got to win, you've got to be fit, you've got to, be, you've got to win, look at the person as a whole, which is what we do anyway, um, and then have meetings and strategies with UEFA and FIFA and all the relevant organisations 
and then finally now that's not aimed at you guys I found this yesterday obviously in terms of questions good questions but you don't deserve an answer that was what Jose Mourinho said at the press conference so that's not aimed at you but that's the finishing point so there you go thank you very much Exactly. So, in terms of saying about gay, as I'm sure you probably all know, there is not a single uh, professional footballer in England who's openly come out as being gay. Yeah, I, I don't know who this person is, but talking to one of the leading uh, sports, um, yeah, sports psychiatrists ball and the league managers, um, he did mention Bruce with, who was playing at whichever level, gay. And we both said it would be fantastic if they would come out. And it's not happened yet, but I'd love it if they'd come out in the near future. Fashion uh, Yeah, just in fashion Yeah, so absolutely. And, and obviously, just in fashion that happened years ago, a few decades ago. But who knows? There's still that stigma and discrimination in terms of mental health, in terms of sexuality. So, yeah, I think I would like to think that some clubs would be supportive, some players would be supportive. But yeah, I'm sure you've seen the fans. Some fans are awful, aren't they? Either on social media or at the ground. But if you're not playing well, they just get abused. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. The big thing taking place has to be about ethnic Yeah. Yeah, and that that still happens. Personally, I think that's a good thing. Um, and if you look at Obviously, we've got a manager on here. If you look at the coaches and managers within the English leagues, there's a handful of, of black managers. And there's a few at coaching level, but there's loads of players. So where's the pathway from these players coming up? Because, again, they, they're stigmatised. They're, um, they suffer different issues. They have their own mental health issues. In some cases, they might be more predisposed to mental health issues. Yet they should be supported and, and helped elevate into these kind of roles because we've got some great experience. <laughs> I'll get hands all over the place. Oh, I don't know who did it first because I only paid enough attention. So, shall we go? We've not got a lot of time for questions, but shall we go Peggy, Ernie, Angela, and then yourself? Is that okay. all right? Is that okay? Yeah. So, under 18 plays, did you say that? Yeah, so Crystal Palace, as an example, have recently set up an aftercare package for young players who have been released, uh, which is brilliant. But again, it's one club out of 92 in England. So we need more. It, it's a positive step. I don't know enough about it, but it's certainly a positive step. But the other thing, with young players being released, they have their challenges. But if you talk to the parents as well, the parents are also devastated because of their sacrifice and, be, and devastated for their, for their youngling. I'm going to keep using that. For their youngling. Um, but Crystal Palace are leading the way, but we need more support for young players. So obviously I focused on first team players, we need more support at all levels. Young people, come up players, going through the transition to retirement, we just need to be more of everything now. Really. Yeah. 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 The money doesn't go to the ground, it goes to the What can you, what will this research have to do with that? 
Yeah, hopefully, there's an easy answer. So there needs to be more of a more parity of esteem. Um, and, and like I say, there's lots of football in, um, lots of football, lots of money in football, and you might see issues with European Super League, and like I say, the rich clubs get richer, but the smaller clubs get poorer. So in terms of um, adding this support in, the lower clubs, some of them would be interested, but if you've got a limited resource, you need to put it somewhere else. So rather than say, right, we've got, I don't know, £100,000 to put into play welfare, we might need that to pay the bills and pay the tax man. Well, we're just not interested. They're spending £100 million on players. Welfare is not, well, I'm sure we do bits, but we don't do enough. So it's that, the, the rich clubs just want more money. Well, that's how it seems. There is more work out there, and it's getting better. So some players naturally will have a plan B. There's still lots of players that don't. Um, there is a, an ex-player who set up a group called LAPS, Life After Professional Sports. I'm not just aimed at football, but for elite sport. And I talked to him, and, and he transitioned and developed this company. And he works with clubs um, for that reason, to try and encourage a plan B. So it depends on the mindset of the clubs themselves. Some clubs are really supportive and are open to new ideas. But some clubs are draconian, set in the old ways, and it's about winning. And if you're not going to win or play the game, you're out the door. Yeah, and my question is kind of in the arms of like Crystal Palace. Okay. But I was wondering if there is a team that has some kind of best practice model that okay. could be used um, when they get the new players in from abroad or yeah. looking at their end ethnicity, how they're going to fit in, uh, and their welfare at the same time, but yeah. also to go through to all players when they first join the team. Yeah. Surely that's, that's going to be a benefit to the team Absolutely. in the outcome of how they play well. Yeah, so clubs have a player liaison officer who would do that, so if somebody comes in from abroad, they would help them settle in, find a house and sort of finance and do all that side of it, but I'm not sure how much of that links to well-being and their mental welfare um, because again these people in those roles haven't got the training so we might mean well and, and make the best effort but without that level of training and understanding it's not going to be effective and again you've got that mindset of players who don't want to talk about it because we don't want to jeopardize the contract and the position well they may not be able to talk about it because their english might not be good yeah exactly yeah but even if a player comes from ireland or a different yeah. kind of environment um, they're going to feel out of their comfort zone Absolutely. without, you know, their yeah. support. And in the Premier League, players come globally. So the view of mental health across different cultures is very yeah. different to what we were talking about now. So, yeah, lots more words. Lots of words to be done. Hopefully this will make a difference. So let me thank you very much for okay. a very interesting